Welcome to our podcast on collaborative leadership, which follows on from a seminar that we held in February in Birmingham, where we looked at lessons uh, from, among other things, the 2022 Commonwealth Games. So I'm joined today uh, by um, Dr. Simon Adaman, who's a Associate Professor of Project Management at the Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction. So welcome, Simon. Thank you very much, Andy. I'm joined by Jenny McKenzie, um, Commonwealth Games Senior Programme Manager for Transport uh, for West Midlands. Hi, Andy. Mark Russell, Chief Executive of the Children's Society. Hi there. And Deirdre Fox, or not Executive Director of the Advanced Consultancy. Deirdre, you kindly chaired our session that we held in Birmingham as well. So thank you very much for, for that. So a bit of scene set. So um, moving the dial on leadership uh, capability is one of the major projects association's strategic objectives. So we've got a four year uh, plan to, to improve it. So we've been weaving the topic uh, into our seminars and this seminar in particular examined leadership through the lens of collaboration. And we you know, deliberately chose uh, Birmingham so that we could um, put a spotlight on lessons from the 2022 games. And we had uh, Andy, uh, Andy Newman, who is the director of uh, Legacy, uh, from the games. We had Alex Kirby from the director of the venues from the games and, and obviously uh, um, uh, Jenny on, on the transport side. And we also had James who was looking at the capital projects aspect of it as well. And we learned how the games were, um, well, they were awarded late. Um, so they were awarded to another host city first, that host city pulled out and then Birmingham stepped in to deliver the games in, in, a, in a significantly reduced period. Um, and then COVID uh, hit. So we've got reduced period, we've got the complexity of COVID. We learned how a lot of the team were recruited remotely. So mobilisation happened in, in a lockdown uh, environment. So the opportunities to form teams uh, was, was a challenge. Um, and then, you know, sort of partway through the project, certainly when it was already into some of the construction elements, there was a de-scoping, realising that uh, not all aspects of the, the game would be delivered. And this is something I just want to explore on first before bringing some others in. So, so Jenny, in, in your talk about the transport side of the uh, of the infrastructure needed uh, for the Games, you talked about the need to deliver the new capital aspects for the purpose of the Games, but also you've got the communities involved that, you know, having the, the Games sort of come to them and then they obviously want a, a legacy afterwards. So a multiple sort of stakeholder complexity contest there. And one of the things you said that sort of stuck with me is that you, you have to prepare well enough so that you can work together when things don't go to plan. And James on the capital project side also said, expect the worst, plan for the best. So I think he was sort of uh, saying similar things. And clearly when that de-scoping happened, and it was, I think it was the Athletes Village, was it the Perry Bar uh, scheme? Um, so clearly that required a coming together of all the, the parties that were involved. Uh, and a decision was made that, you know, uh, some some parties would lose more than others in terms of the decisions to, to, to de-scope. So I just wondered how, how did that work? Because often we focus on the upside of collaboration uh, and not necessarily the, the difficult moments of, of collaboration. Yeah, uh, well, I think maybe firstly, I'll just say that in, in support of your uh, initial assessment at the Games, you know, we had a lot less time than we would normally have. So Games are usually awarded and they have a seven year programme to plan and deliver. Uh, this one obviously was a, you know, a, a substitution almost um, at a later stage. So Birmingham had four years effectively when usually you would have seven. Um, so I think they had sort of three things to 
three things that were a challenge for us in the transport element. One was we had less time overall to deliver. Secondly, we were now delivering in parallel. Usually there's a bit of breathing space between delivering capital infrastructure and delivering the projects of operations for, for the games itself. And we were now looking at doing both of those in parallel. Uh, and then we were looking at unforeseen circumstances. You don't plan for a pandemic. It's not one that generally jumps onto the risk register early. So this was this was a genuinely new challenge for everyone to work to, not obviously just transport, but everyone. And that it fundamentally changed the game. One of one of those big changes was the Athletes Village was no longer going to be a hub and spoke model for transport, which would normally be the case at this type of multi-venue, multi-sport event. And so now we were effectively now looking at innovating that transport operational delivery piece um, and broadening it. So instead of one athlete's village, we would have a minimum of three. They would be in different conurbations in the West Midlands. Uh, and we would now be moving from a hub and spoke service to a totally different design. So there's a lot of opportunity in that. And we were looking at that, I think. But this is also a, an opportunity for transport to look at how it could innovate its service level for games such as this. Uh, and it had been, you know, a pretty historic way to manage transport previously. Uh, and there was an effort also underway once we knew that this was a challenge. Yes, the, the you know, the first reaction to it is that's that's a big challenge now that we have to deal with with the same budget and the same scope. Um, so we're now looking at something that effectively triples the transport operation if we're not careful. So uh, for us, it's a it's a deep dive into the scope and how we manage it um, and then how we manage and, and um, disseminate the work and the resources. So it came up in lots of areas, that kind of challenge, as you might imagine. I think for us, it was a case of needing to know where our key focuses were, needing to be very clear about what our commitments were publicly as a transport plan, because we issued a statutory plan for the public. So we couldn't walk away from that and leave it just because COVID came along. Um, as big a challenge as that was, that was not an option. So we made you know, several commitments in that statutory plan. So we needed to look at that. We needed to look at how then we would work with partners potentially differently than we were working with them previous to that point in time. We needed to assure it and agree, so we needed to do a, a good piece of homework really for transport on how will this change, how do we how will we manage that change and deliver on it? And then we needed to get buy-in from all of our stakeholders on doing that. Those, those are big changes for us to make a, a pretty late stage in the programme, um, you know, overall. Uh, so it puts more pressure on everyone. It's not just the planning and delivery mechanism and, and resources that TFWM as a sort of lead partner for delivery puts in. It's all the impacts that it then has on all the partners. So the partnership framework became really important. It just grows in its importance, basically. And then you ask a bit more of everyone you're like everybody's now doing a little bit more is everybody happy to do a little bit more can we all agree and support each other doing that so and then you need to need to make a clear decision you need to kind of put your money where your mouth is and then you need to get behind it in basic terms so you know there's no going back we can't go back to something we've got to do away with this level of uncertainties I think at some point I trotted out the phrase the time for maybes is over um, and that was a really clear instruction from a programme perspective because we needed to move forward and there was there was a lot to do. So everybody needed to to live with the uncertainty it was going to it was going to give us for for the duration and just be more content in that environment uh, and operate anyway. So we talked about risk tolerance in, in the, the session uh, the other week, and, and that was a big part of what we had to do. We had to inherit effectively more risk and work with it anyway. So um, good buy-in from everybody mean, means that that progress still moved forward, and, and it did so well, I think. This sounds like there was lots of discussion, you know, lots of uh, 
I guess each of the parties setting out where they were, what they could do. But but it was really interesting that right at the beginning you were also, you were also saying we were focusing on the opportunities. So it was uh, um, in, in, in spite of all the you know that those challenges, it was still what's the opportunity that's still available to you as a collaborative group to to, to move forward. That's yeah, really really interesting. Um, there's one aspect there that it feels that when you came together is that there you know there wasn't too many how, how can i put this politely too many precious people or or, or uh, personalities that were, were were in play and it sort of it's a really nice segue now for for bringing in another one of our speakers so uh so, so mark uh, russell you one of the things i i made a note that you said which is uh leaders shouldn't give a damn who takes the credit and it feels like that definitely happened on the 2022 games so um i'll just uh explain so uh, part of our series of um uh, making sure the association doesn't just listen to itself and and its own members so we had our annual conference around escaping the major projects echo chamber so we have um, you know, an approach of, uh, uh, of including uh, both the experts from within uh, our association and our world of major projects and experts from from outside. So, so Mark, you were our outsider uh, for the day. So, Mark, uh, Chief Executive of the Children's Society. And I'll just give some stats that you gave us um, uh, around. You have, um, uh, um, well, you, you, you look after around about 50,000 children through uh, 80 different services with just 750 staff and you know uh, and, and my sort of you know jaw hit the floor when you when you gave those those numbers so that means you deliver those services with and through others so collaboration for the children's society is a sort of strategic necessity without it you weren't collaborative you just wouldn't be able to uh, to help those 50,000 uh, children. Um, so uh, uh, it's a great, great work. So I'll give uh, you a little chance now before I ask you some <laughs> the difficult question like I did with uh, Jenny a moment ago, but a chance for you to plug or for you to say the great things that your organisation does. Thank you, Andy. Um, it was a privilege being with you. I mean, I'm I'm really proud of our organisation. We are in the charity world. We're a big animal, so we're about 750 staff, as you say, but in terms of the scale of the ambition we have and the scale of the impact we want to have, that's actually quite small. And we can only achieve what we want to achieve through collaboration and partnership with a whole range of organisations, people, individuals, hopefully even some within the listening of this uh, podcast. Um, but we're running services around the country, supporting kids with their mental health, helping children at risk of exploitation. Um, and as well as that, we do a huge amount of work to prevent issues arising in children's lives. And our prevention work reaches about three quarters of a million children. And just as we're recording this podcast, our Look Closer campaign is launched with the National Police Police Chiefs Council and the British Transport Police with billboards all over the country to raise awareness of how children can be exploited and, and the signs of that. So helping people know what to do. So if anyone wants to know more, uh, Google Children's Society, you'll find our website, you'll find our Twitter, our social media. And um, yeah, if you've got a few spare quid, we'd also welcome that as well to help us with raising the 40 million we need to make the organisation work. Brilliant. And, and we'll put some links in our podcast notes as well. So uh, um, if you listeners, please do follow up on that. I won't do my Bob Geldof moment, but yeah, yes, uh, <laughs> show your appreciation in the usual way. Um, so, uh, Mark, you gave us 10 key learnings um, 
for, for collaborative leadership and, and summarized those for us. And, and I was looking across the room and, and every single person was scribbling as quick as they could to, to capture the notes. Um, but, but fortunately for them, we, we've included them in our highlights report. So uh, for, for listeners who, uh, who, who, who weren't at the seminar or those who were writing but couldn't write quick enough, um, if you go to uh, our highlights report, you'll find the 10 key learnings for, for collaborative leadership that Mark shared with us. I would just like to focus on two of those. One was around sort of co-creation and co-design uh, of services and 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 the approaches that you'll take, and the other one was around clarity of what success looks like. And for me, they're 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 twinned or paired uh, learnings because if you want to think about success, you have to do it from all the parties involved, and therefore the best way to do that is to do so on a co co-creation or co-design uh, basis. And as you were talking, I was uh, thinking about the. Uh, the film the fifth element with uh, bruce willis where uh, someone's held hostage and you know bruce comes to the rescue and he um, asks to you know who's who's the negotiator and someone steps forward and and he shoots this alien uh, person that was you know put forward to negotiate and he says who's the next negotiator and then they gave up and gave the hostage back but but the point that sort of that is that sometimes when we're thinking about collaboration we it's often it feels like one party or one organization's dominating uh, another and so it's not really co-creation or co-design it's just one party imposing themselves on another to say that's the design you want isn't it uh, and then they reluctantly agree so how do you go about making sure when you're working with all those you know organizations those partners that you, you work with that 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 the co-creation the co-design is is genuine and not just one organization imposing on another it's a really really important question and i think when in a partnership or a piece of collaboration, one party is sort of forcing its way on everybody else and saying this is the way it's going to be done. That comes from a position of arrogance and comes from a position that they know best and that they, there is no learning for them anywhere else. And so when we reshaped our organization, our ambition, and we, we've been very clear with everyone, our ambition is to be a learning organization. That means we don't know everything. Uh, we know other people do and we want to learn from them. And so Dealing with a power imbalance, which of course, if there's a power imbalance, there will not be genuine partnership and collaboration. Proper co-design happens when parties show up as equals and recognize that they each bring something different to a table, but they each can see what they're missing in their in their partner who brings something else to the table. And, and so when we're co doing co-design, that that is, so for example, in the middle of Birmingham, we have a drop-in center for young people with mental health challenges. That was a project that was co-designed with young people themselves. It was co-designed with our partners in the NHS. And of course, the NHS is a significantly bigger animal than we are, but it was recognizing with the NHS, the young people and us, we each brought something different to the table. And by sharing that, we would come to the best solution. So there's something about helping ensure that nobody ever feels done to uh, mm -hmm. in, in any kind of collaboration and partnership. The other thing that's really important about ensuring co-design is a clear North Star. So there's clear agreement on what success is, what we're trying to achieve. So you can each bring something different to the table and you can each have different strengths. But the key thing is to agree what we're trying to do and what we want to achieve together. And, and that that the how you achieve that is bluntly is down to good leadership. Um, and I often say, you know, that leadership really matters all the time but it particularly matters when you're doing collaboration and partnership you know accessible leadership generous leadership showing up to work as a paid up member of the human race you know and and i said at the conference you know a leader with no followers is simply someone out for a walk and and actually it's really important to build those relationships around you 
because leadership really does matter. Um, and, and at the heart of that is the word trust. And partnerships thrive when there's trust. And, and trust is, is earned really slowly and lost very fast. And, and building trust and taking time to build trust. And, and, and that means admitting mistakes. It means owning stuff. It means recognizing where you perhaps need to learn and grow. And when all of that happens, then the, the magic happens with co-design. The magic happens with success. And you achieve far more together as a, than you would do with some of your parts. And that is when the goal of partnership takes off. And you know, I'll give you one example. We, we as a charity, uh, changed the law on school uniform last year, which is a big deal for a charity to do. We only did that as part of a coalition of other charities, a coalition of politicians and members of parliament, and a coalition of 100,000 people who carpet bombed their MPs and demanded that we change the law. And that required the Children's Society to be generous. It required us to be sacrificial. It required us to be humble. It required us to push others forward and ourselves to step back at times. But th that was because we held in front of us at all times the big goal, which was to make every child's uniform in Britain cheaper. And we managed to make that happen. And, and that's because, as I said, and you quoted earlier, social change only ever happens when leaders don't give a damn and takes the credit. And, uh, and I want the Children's Society to be a generous, collaborative, brave, humble, uh, sacrificial organisation that wants to put social change ahead of our own ambitions. That's brilliant to hear, Mark. And, and there's just, you know, as, as we listen to experts from, from outside our, our world, there's just so many things that we can, you know, pick up on and, and learn and apply in our own world. And, and clearly the 2022 Games had the North Star, as, as you, you called it, in terms of the fixed deadline, knowing what a good Games could look like, but also knowing from the 2012 experience what a good legacy uh, could look like. So I think that success was sort of um, hardwired into the mindset uh, already. Your point about time on trust is really interesting because, you know, I've spent uh, a lot of my uh, career uh, um, undertaking reviews and assurance work. So I've, I've looked at too many major projects in, in my time. And uh, and the, the rush to get into delivery and then the cost and time pressures we often have in delivery means that I often see that corners that are cut are on the time taken to establish teams and the time taken to establish those networks of connections that keep the team together. So I think that's a key lesson for us as well, which is if you're going to invest in anything, uh, you know, above and beyond the sort of the, the, the hard elements of a project, it is around the time available and the means available for teams across organisational boundaries to, to come together. And I think it's, it's really important. So thank you for that, Mark. Um, we had a collaboration um, in uh, uh, in demonstration uh, in terms of our, um, our, our pair of speakers, we had a pair of profs. Um, so we had uh, Professor Simon Adaman from UCL and Professor Carl Gavin from um, Alliance Manchester Business School. So uh, okay, a, a great example of, of where we can collaborate. Um, and Carl actually offered us um, a definition of um, collaboration, which is the delivery of results across organisational boundaries. And I think that sort of framed how we think about what we mean. It isn't just sort of customer supplier type relationships. It's a, it's a multi uh, um, you know, uh, organisational, uh, multi-dimensional uh, relationship. Um, but but Sam, you you provided a, a bit of counterbalance because there was a tendency for us to be doing a bit of backslapping and, and and congratulating ourselves on the improvements we've made in that we see examples of projects that are more collaborative than we've seen before. Um, but you were making the point that 
um, it's possibly a sticking plaster over, you know, or, or to, to help us deal with some of the nonsense that we have in how our major projects are set up and, and delivered. Uh, and you made um, quite a gritty point, really, around that if we have got better um, in how we deliver our projects in a collaborative way, then why are aspects like productivity and construction, but more importantly, the one you gave us an example of was uh, male suicide, uh, in, in construction projects not improved and I think you said it's flatlined since 2011 um, so we're saying we've got better but actually one aspect hasn't so if we were genuinely collaborative then all aspects of project performance including reduction of um, male suicide in, in the case that you gave should should Im improve um, so I wonder uh, my question to you uh, Simon then is around you know do you feel, and, and, and if so, how do we make this shift in the sort of, you know, you, you, I think you called it the philosophical shift around what it is that we want to get from our major projects? So I just wanted to uh, see if you can sort of um, share your thoughts on, on that aspect. Yeah, thanks very much, Andy. Um, I was uh, kind of moved to kind of put that data forward, really, from from a couple of chapters um, in the in the book I've just published with Professor Headley Smythe, which talked which talked of a toxic culture uh, in in construction. So I was talking about construction specifically. Uh, and then uh, another chapter which is on the ethics of care. And this is really the, these two chapters inspired me. And uh, certainly the ethics of care one is where I, I drew some some of my data from. And um, Broadly, what we saw in doing the book, and particularly in those two chapters, particularly the ethics of care, was that um, let's take health and safety in construction. You know, we work together as an industry, and we reduced the health and safety, uh, um, you know, accident rate, uh, and we've got much much improved performance. Um, we can be quite prescriptive with health and safety in terms of the rules that we use, in terms of simply wearing hard hats, method statements, uh, et cetera. Well-being uh, and our own kind of mental health and well-being is something very difficult for organisations to be prescriptive about. Many of these aspects are in our home lives, um, outside of the organisations, the boundaries of the organisations that, uh, that Carl talked about. Um, but nevertheless, they're a part of our everyday working lives. And what I've experienced, I think, in construction is that we become very heavily reliant on models and, and how we represent what we're going to do through these models, whether these are operational models, target models, procurement models. Uh, and we heard it on the day. There was, oh, we didn't have a playbook for this. Um, I would argue that we, we all have a playbook. Yeah, All of us individually have a playbook. We all have a theory about how we go about life. OK, so we all have our own playbook. Um, so I try and put those two things together. And philosophically, I would think about that in terms of, you know, a representational philosophy here. I can represent the world, you know, outside of me. And this is what it is. And if I can find a fit and achieve that, it will be successful. Um, or a relational philosophy, which says, you know, it's more about the relationships I have with people and the things around me. They enable me to be productive and move on in life. Those are kind of two, maybe from an objective and a subjective kind of philosophical position, which determines the kind of knowledge we need to uh, to do these things. And that's where I say, oh, you know, where was the playbook? <laughs> Whereas actually, 
when we bring our own lives in, we've all we've got an idea about what we need to do. We could see in Jenny's example, you know, we you know there wasn't a playbook for a shorter time frame, let alone a Commonwealth Games. But nevertheless, we all had when when we work collaboratively, and we 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 apply all the principles that we discussed on the day, and which Jenny and Mark have so eloquently um, uh, spoken about here already. We find that we can, you know bring those two sides of the equation together, that representational side and that relational side, we can bring those together. What, what we need in kind of industrial organising is a kind of normative framework from which we all work. Well, once we create a normative framework, that allows us to administer a system that can deliver its outputs. On, on the day, I particularly presented on organisational routines. But that normative framework is a question about us all as individuals deciding what sits inside the framework to create order, a sense of order where we can produce and reproduce things, and what we're going to exclude, which is kind of disorder. And in that sense, me as an individual, I need to feel that I am a part of that decision-making process in achieving that collective outcome so that I'm constituting that framework, that playbook, at the same time as we're trying to enact that uh, that, that framework. And that, for me, uh, quite often we don't do that in, in projects more generally, and certainly I talk about the construction industry. We kind of create the contract or we create the procurement model and we say this is what it is and you need to comply with it. If you look at a lot of positive examples of collaboration, you'll see that that they've you know done all the things that we've talked about here today. They've done the, the, the kind of model that Carl talked about crossing those boundaries. I mean, it was great to see on LinkedIn, they've announced Bank Station is opened. You know, I ran Bank Station for five years. I did the procurement model, uh, very collaborative procurement model, and then set up the project with uh, Dragados, the contractors. And we had a very clear collective intent of what we wanted to achieve. Um, safely together was our motto. And, 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 and we followed that. And we as the client wanted our benefits. The contractor wanted us to get that worked for us to get those benefits. And we wanted the contractor to make a profit. And we wanted to do that safely together. And 10, 10 years later, they've delivered it with with no dispute, you know, no no outstanding major problems, a fantastically operational station. So what I think we need to do is we need to balance those two things together. I'm not suggesting we get rid of the models and the playbooks, but we need to recognise that either at the organisational team or individual level, we need to open up and allow those voices in and allow those voices heard so that they feel they are constituting that collaborative framework that is going to be for the future, not just for now, but for the for the future as well, and uh, that that's broadly where I uh, broadly where I sit with it. I, I take the view of organisational routines because they're the central element of production in organisations, whether those are charitable organisations or transport or construction. Um, so that was my view. But unless we start kind of designing mechanisms that put those two things together collaboration will be forever be a, a sticking plaster. Yeah, it's interesting you 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 talk about models in relation to those um, uh, or how we organize uh, major projects. And you know it, we could just do a quick trawl now and just say, you know let's pick ten 
10 major projects at random that we, we're aware of and get the, the, the organograms from them. And they'll be based upon, um, you know, um, instruction and responsibility and accountability type, uh, you know, lines between them. And, and actually what you're talking about in terms of routines, it's around, um, uh, well, the, the routines and it will be around the relationships. And perhaps we need to think more about the relationships than we do about the command and control lines of communication that we see in, in typical sort of, you know, project organising models. Um, I think we'd, we'd do much better thinking about those than, uh, yeah. than the governance aspects. I think ma major projects are very complex endeavours. OK, they're mm -hmm. very uncertain, they're very complex endeavours, and we can talk about lots of others as well. But let's take major projects. I mean, Mark's situation is very complex as well. What 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 we what we find we published some research uh, about four or five years ago on self organising in major projects and we did a study on on the bank project and wh when people are in uh, in very uncertain and very complex environments we naturally self organise to kind of reduce the uncertainty and create some sense of order a model and a command and control model and that organogram that all these people that do the insurance want to have a look at on day one, where's your organogram? Oh, here it is. Um, when you look at the self-organizing network nature of this stuff, so it, it, that is, is, is the productive element of it that, that mm. is happening. And, and when you examine that self-organizing and the practices and things and routines that are going on, that those people are creating and recreating, we see something very different. Be, be, be aware I don't reject the model or the organogram. I'm trying to get a fit between the, the two things. We need a model. We all have a model about how we think about the world. You can't have a theory that there is no theory, right? So you kind of have to have a model. Um, but at the same time, we have to create those collaborative mechanisms that allow all those people to integrate together. So on, on bank, for example, our, ours was the procurement model engaged the different tiers of the supply chain so that when we by the time we came to delivery those lower level tiers of the supply chain didn't become lower levels we all came at, at the same level and they felt hey we're constituting this thing our actions are constituting this collaborative framework so people felt more engaged and you get the information that you need much quicker much easier and are able to make those better decisions to move forward collectively towards that collective intent yeah and it's uh, in, in terms of how then that relates to the collaborative leader it was interesting in, in Carl's uh, opening where he talked about the different facets of say a project sponsor he really focused on the sensing and the relating aspects of of the role and and that's looking beyond the organogram and looking at those relationships yeah. those routines and seeing where the productivity yeah. is, is coming from so uh, great thank you Simon and you've given me a, a, another great segue so this is a, a, a podcast of segues uh, uh, today so um, about the playbook because Deidre I've come to you last but actually you um, you, you kicked us off um, uh, for the for the seminar, uh, and um, you came right out with it to say, you know, there is no playbook for uh, collaborative uh, leadership and how we go about doing things. But uh, you also observed that, um, you know, in spite of there not being one, we just sort of get together and we work through it. So it's it, my question to you is: Is it in our human nature then? Are we just collaborative by nature? Uh, and if so, how do we go about in making sure we don't lose that when we're working on major projects? Oh, that's such a good question. 
I think just just reflecting on that, if I think about it, it's, it's almost like sort of seven ages of man, isn't it? You know, when you're kids, you love playing with other kids and you interact with each other and you make stuff together and it and it's very intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, I mean, I have a background of, of over 35 years working in, in manufacturing and industry. And what I saw through that is that clearly as you rise up through what are fundamentally quite bureaucratic structures, um, is actually the, there is that almost increasing belief that you have to have all the answers um, as a leader. So as you get higher and higher in the organisation, you've got to have all the answers. And actually almost the the intuitive piece around, you, you know you actually haven't got the answers. You know other people are better at your job than you, but there almost becomes that culture where you can't admit it. And and the the desire, the confidence to collaborate as individuals almost starts to disappear. And actually to be a truly collaborative leader, I do think you've got to have quite a lot of confidence in yourself. Um, You used the expression earlier, Mark, about being a generous leader. Um, There's a lot of things as a collaborative leader that you've got to be able to do. You've got to be able to be prepared to ask questions of the people around you. Um, You've got to be prepared to make make decisions against timescales when you might be uncomfortable. You've got to be prepared to admit that you're wrong. Um, and, and you've got to be prepared to listen and show a little bit of vulnerability and humility mm. as a leader. And, and as I listened to Simon talking about the frameworks, which, by the way, Simon, I absolutely agree with, what sits in the middle of that are human behaviours. And how do you get human behaviours to form within that need for normative frameworks that keep our business and our methods of production running? So I, I, I mean, I, if, I, if I look, there's, there's, there's two things that sort of shaped my experience coming into, coming into this workshop, which I found absolutely fascinating. The first was uh, leading, leading a large multinational to prepare for Brexit. There was absolutely no playbook for Brexit. No Mm -hmm. one had a clue what it meant. So there was that piece. I was then a volunteer in the Commonwealth Games. And much as I know there were brilliant experts around infrastructure and delivering events, every event is different. Those two things, I would say, to me, demonstrated fully how important collaboration is. And sometimes I I think the whole, the, the danger of a framework and a playbook is it can inhibit people's innovative thinking and creativity because you rely on what has happened before. And sometimes just sitting with a clean sheet of paper saying, do you know, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Maybe I need to talk to somebody in the charity sector. Maybe I give Mark Russell a ring. Maybe I should be talking to somebody in the theatre and the arts because they put Mm -hmm. on events all the time. So sometimes I think those of us who've been in a particular environment for a long time, manufacturing major projects, we actually have to be a bit big and brave and get out of our echo chamber, as you said at the beginning, Andy, and mm-hmm. reach out to people that we don't think have, we have anything in common with. And I think sometimes we might be very surprised at the outcome. And that comes back to one of the things that Mark in his top 10 tips was around sort of a learning mindset. And if you have a learning mindset, 
by definition, you're fessing up that you're an incomplete leader. And therefore, to be a complete leader, you've got to collaborate with others to, you know, to complement the skills that, or, or, or behaviours or viewpoints that, that you don't have yourself. Um, yeah. You know, so it's a really good... Yeah, very much so. And I mean, I, I almost hate to raise it, but I do think there are also some gender differences that come into here as mm. well, where I think women and men behave differently as leaders and differently as collaborative partners. Um, but as someone commented earlier, it's all about putting a diversity of thought. It's not just about gender and it's diversity of thought into a team. And if you bring diversity of thought into a team and really listen to it as a leader, it, it can be tremendously powerful. Yeah, and Simon, you look like you want to say something as well on that. Yeah, thanks. I was thinking about the notion of incomplete information. Uh, you know, we talked about the notion of the incomplete leader. I think Carl kind of, you know, some of Carl's work was built on that idea. And if I think about the literature that I draw from, um, certainly for the normative framework, you know, there's, and what we're talking about, the playbook and everything, the information that we need is incomplete. We should start on that basis. And then if we kind of follow Deirdre's direction, we go out in a sensible way and we search for that information. People would naturally do that anyway. That's what we see when we do research on self-organising. People go out and search for that information. So I, I like this idea that, that you know, or, or let's start thinking that, OK, information is incomplete. We need to go out and make it become more complete or sufficiently complete to allow us to move on. It's never quite fully complete, right? Um, and I think what Jenny, Mark and Deirdre have all spoken about is that that essence of search um, is a part of the recreating of the routines that we need to do together to achieve that collective intent that we're trying to, to get to at the end of it. If we stick rigidly to, the, to, to these norms and these models that have been created, and in major projects that tends to be governance standards or British standards or contracts. We said, no, no, this is how it is. And, and quite often it's not. We need something else that we need to add to it. And it's all those individuals taking part, that those individual actions by all those all those humans that, uh, that, that bring that lack of information to fruition. Great, thank you. So um, I'm very aware of our time because I feel we could carry on talking about this for, for another half an hour or so, but uh, we like to keep our podcasts, um, uh, um, you know, compact, uh, so to speak. So um, so I'm going to start drawing this to, to a close. Um, our report writer um, captured some some outputs from the workshop element that we had at the uh, the seminar. So we, we you know, the, the attendees sort of broke into various groups and we posed a number of questions. And between them, they come up with sort of three themes that they felt had been discussed through the afternoon and and uh, and, and uh, were useful to capture to share with others and that was around the importance of, of the the north star as mark said it but clarity of of purpose the leaders need to be able to create and communicate a vision uh, outcomes and set of values that creates a shared purpose for the delivery team and the program stakeholders and and that means when you get to the difficult conversations and those uh, uh, difficult moments as jenny uh, explained it's much easier to have conversations about what you're going to do when you've already got that clarity around who, who's in it for, for what reasons. Um, the other one's around the importance of governance and that's not in terms of command and control but more about empowerment at all levels through the project 
um, so that collaborative, collaborative leadership isn't just something that's done at the pinnacle, but but all the way through the the, the different uh, teams that are working on on the project or, or program. And then the last one was around behaviours. Um, so having the the right, you know, the, the uh, encouraging the right behaviours and rewarding the right behaviours uh, on the project as well. So I thought there are three really interesting takeaways that we had. But I'm going to give you a chance now to add to those or to uh, embellish those if you'd like to your last thoughts so any additional key takeaways or just a last word you'd like to to share with the, the listeners so mark i will start with you well I, one of the other um speakers gave them my angelo quote i had to take it out of my notes because he'd already said it which is that people will forget what you said but they will never forget how you made them feel and i think yeah. that's what at its heart is what behaviors is all about it's about in creating a culture where people thrive and people fly and people do their best work and that means that you've created a culture where people are empowered where they know that what their responsibility is they know where decisions are taken and frankly, they know their leaders have got their back. And, mm. and it's that kind of culture where you've created a, an environment, people fly, that's when the magic happens. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Jenny, any last thoughts from, from you? I'm busy nodding away to everybody's points of view. It's a fascinating sort of conversation. Um, there's so much, it's such a big subject, it's such a big word, I suppose, and it's, mm -hmm. it's difficult to, to um, lob in other things. I think. Um, with transport, we, we came up with a phrase in transport we used early and we never really used again, but we tried to build an ethic around it, which was one team, one network. Um, for us, it was how, do, how can we create a team that feels valued, I think. And I think when you're looking at collaboration and leadership in particular, that is a huge takeaway. There's nothing worse than a work, having worked your socks off than somebody, quite frankly, for maybe forgets to turn around and say, thanks, what a smashing job mm -hmm. you just did. Um, and that goes through the team. So. I think that um, that sort of collaborative element uh, really needs to be a priority in, in any team. Um, and I think the other part of it is creativity. I think if you were to take one thing away from the games environment for other projects that don't deal with the same sorts of things, it's and we've touched on it a little bit today, but I think it's really important. All of this is down to human behaviour most of the time. Don't forget to play. It sounds ridiculous, sounds a little sentimental, and it sounds a little bit like, well, but there's no time for that. But a huge part of the personality of event management planning on a multi-sport level is a social aspect of it. And that's mm -hmm. what builds the team. That's what allows you to pick up the phone to Joe Bloggs, you know, on an operational day when you're suddenly under pressure and you have something to solve and get them to help you to solve it. Don't forget that that, you know, that notion of play and creativity is so important to these types of dynamics that it needs to be needs to be threaded into your day to day. You need to keep your sense of humour about you is how we talk about it a lot in transport. But ultimately, that that leads to a successful endeavour usually. Yeah, and, and by doing so, you learn more about each other and it makes it uh, much easier to, to to then deal with those those moments, whether they're opportunities or, or challenges. So thank you, Jenny. Uh, Simon, any last thoughts? Yeah, great discussion. I think collaboration can't just be for the sake of collaboration. You know, uh, it, it's it's not just for accomplishing the task kind of in the moment. Um, collaboration has to be about, you know, the, the future as well um and being able to to collectively achieve something that is is ahead of us not just 
in, in, in the moment. And I think if mm-hmm. if we allow those voices to come together to say we're doing this for a, for, for a purpose, for for achieving this future event, we will we will start to uh, start to improve the way that we uh, that we collaborate together. Thank you. Um, and Deirdre, you're, you're bookending our discussion on this. You kicked off our conference and now you're going to close out our podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. What a responsibility. And I'm really not sure. I think so much has been covered already. Um, but I would like to just reinforce one of the points Jenny made. I had a I had a boss who said to me very early in my career, if you're not having fun when you're doing when you're doing your job and when you're working with others, then why are you doing it? And I think the element of, of enjoyment and fun in anything is important. That's not just about collaboration. Um, but I think the other thing I would say is in a truly collaborative team, we talked about empowerment already. Um, but on the day there was a discussion around in, in, in a truly collaborative team, you would like a whole team of leaders, people who all feel that they have a part to play. They all have a responsibility and a contribution to make and therefore in their own place are leaders within the scope of what they do. And if you can achieve that feeling in everybody in the team, then I think you have achieved true collaboration. Great, thank you, Deirdre. And what a collaborative session we've just had as well in terms of you know, different perspectives, different ways of looking at things and, uh, and sharing different experiences as well. So um, I'm just going to um, call it a day here now. So uh, thank you very much. And uh, I'd just like to uh, thank obviously all of our contributors uh, on the day, but uh, particularly uh, for, for, for Simon, Mark, uh, Deirdre and Jenny for joining us for, for this podcast. Um, please do listen out or watch out on, on the website site and the, the various uh, uh, podcast uh, providers for, for our uh, upcoming ones. Um, so there will be uh, another podcast following on from our next seminar coming up in April. So thank you for listening.